director and mediocre driver hi i'm gabby dunn i'm a writer bicon bisexual icon wink and terrible driver (laughs) i'd say that that's fair i used to be a terrible driver but i've gotten a little bit better i take risks that i don't think people would take i start and stop one time i got in a fight with an ex-boyfriend because he didn't like how i was driving and i just pulled the car over got out and was like you drive then that seems kind of reasonable my parents have had that fight yeah, where it's like, you you think you know so much, you drive. Then did you get back in the car or did you walk home? No, I got back in the car. <laughs> I think that my partner drives too slow and doesn't take enough risks. And then my sister is on the other end of this. Cheyenne drives like a maniac. That's not surprising to me. It's terrifying. And also... She is a road rage. Like she will like mm. she someone cuts her off. It will be full honking, middle finger. Whenever I see someone fuck up on the road, I'm mostly like, I've done that. Yeah. And then, I, and then I don't get that upset because I fuck up all the time. I don't like people who like speed and cut across highways and stuff because that's like intentional. But when someone just like makes a mistake, like how can I judge them? I've done that a hundred times. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's a good metaphor for life as well. But my sister's mode is to absolutely judge them and absolutely like drive up behind them and yell curse words. And I'm in the car white knuckling it being like, we're going to die. We're going to die. But the the thing about someone who does road rage is that if you go gently like, hey, maybe you should slow. It's like, no, (laughs) now you're on the receiving end of it. And the road rage is at you. Remind me never to drive with your sister. I also feel like her car probably isn't clean enough for me. It's very clean, but it does smell like weed. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I have such a fear of getting in friends' cars because I'm so worried they're not going to be clean. I know. I remember this about you. It's really tough. You should bring your own towel. I should bring my own towel. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. If someone is new and they're listening and they don't know you have OCD, they'll just be like, why did Gabby suggest bringing a towel? And why did Allison so readily go, I should bring a towel? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what reality do these girls live in? And it's like, no, 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 no. Let me catch you guys up. Uh, Gabby's sister's a lunatic and Allison has OCD. You're pretty much caught up now. That's the gist of the show. <laughs> well, I'm about to embark on a road trip. I'm about to, to drive over two full days to get to Colorado to meet up with my parents who are also driving from New York to get to Colorado. And I just hope that when they arrive, they're not divorced. Who's driving for you and Jake? For me and Jake, we're going to split it. Okay. And who's driving for your parents? I'm assuming that the plan is for them to split it, but I feel like my mom will probably do more because it's not a great dynamic when my mom is um, the backseat driver. Really? I would have thought that because of your mom's knee, she wouldn't, like your mom had knee surgery. She wouldn't be able to drive long distances. I know, but it's like, what's worse, the pain or the fighting? I don't know. <laughs> does, she, does she think he is too slow or something? My dad is not the best driver and I feel like I can say that because neither am I yeah um, I mean he's better than me for sure but yeah. there's some there's some risks happening okay Cheyenne would argue that she's like a great driver because we get everywhere 30 minutes earlier than Google Maps told us we would <laughs> it's really nice actually driving long distances because you have a lot of time to think and you can play music and podcasts and like it's kind of soothing if it's all very flat for two days, two, I don't have enough thoughts for two full days. 
I don't know what I'm going to say to Jake. I've already said everything I have to say to him. Listen to a podcast. Yeah, but I've listened to all the podcasts. You've listened to every single podcast? You've listened to every single podcast. Every single podcast that I think will interest me, I have at least tried. Every single, that cannot Um, be true. Of the ones that are available to me, I go, I browse through Apple Podcasts constantly looking for new content all of the time. Have you listened to our back catalog? Ah! We've got a great episode for you guys this week. We're going to be talking to Richard Rothstein all about his book, The Color of Law, which details America's history of segregation and redlining. Oh, it was so interesting looking at all his writing and interviews he's done on it. So I'm really excited for this one. And later, we're going to be discussing billionaires, how they influence income inequality. And I have a few bones to pick with them. <laughs> As does most of America. Yeah. But first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. Nicola from Los Angeles, but originally Hong Kong. So uh, the TLDR, too long, didn't read, is if someone asks me if I want to see them again while on our first date and I know I don't want to, how do I tell them? especially if they ask before the end of the date. Some more de- I'm like sweating thinking about this. Okay, <laughs> some more details. There have been many first dates I've been on where the guy will ask me if I want to hang out again while we're on the date. I find it very uncomfortable to say no in person, especially if it's not the end of the date yet, since I don't want to make it awkward. I end up texting them later that I didn't feel a connection and I'm sorry for saying yes during the date, but I felt too awkward to say no. And so far, everyone has responded okay. Should I tell the truth in the future or is it okay to keep lying and just keep texting them the truth afterwards? How do I go about telling the truth during the date? And also if I don't want to be friends, so I can't just say I just want to be friends. Thank you. By the way, I've been following YouTube for years, watched every single YouTube video and absolutely love the podcast. P.S. I know I shouldn't be dating during a pandemic. I wore my mask and always have outdoor dates, but I know I was still putting people at risk and have since paused my dating apps. Well, thank you for the accountability. Although you could have been just doing FaceTime dates or whatever. Like we wouldn't have known that you were, (laughs) we wouldn't have known to judge you. But I do appreciate the caveat for these trying times. I also think that you could potentially do safe outdoor dates with social distancing. Yes, and people have. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want us to all give up on love right now. We need it more than ever. And friends have been doing FaceTime dates. Um, Yeah. But wow. So I picked this question because I did not know the answer. <laughs> so when you first told me the question, I, via email, I said this was interesting to me because I have seen a lot of dating advice that has said, always make sure to ask about the next date on the first date so that they know you're interested and so that they they feel like you want to see them again. And like it's given as like a good tip. But now mm-hmm. when framed from Nicola about what it actually feels like to be on the receiving end of that, I can see how that would be very pressuring and like make you sort of have to make a a split second decision. Sometimes you don't know that how you felt about a date until you get home. You like get home from the date and you're like, okay, how did I feel about that? Like, do I want to see the person again? Like, it's hard to make that decision like when you're looking at them. I also want to address the aspect of this person being a stranger and you not knowing what their emotional reaction to rejection will be. Right. So there is like an element of like potential violence, potential, but I, you know, like I don't want to like say like everyone is going to take rejection well and like 
you like you can always say in person person, that you can always say no to someone's face and like it will end safely right so i think that like first off like let's make sure that if you're even considering saying no that you're not getting a bad vibe from that person (laughs) or that that you're in public or that you're in public like that i would like prioritize your safety um over everything versus their feelings um but so let's say you are in public let's say like you you kind of know this person or it's a friend of a friend, like whatever it is, you don't feel like it's a a safety issue. Then my advice would be, I still don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and even if it is a friend of a friend, it's so hard to judge safety issues anyway, because we all are taught to have like our, you know, our hackles up or whatever. I don't know if that's exactly what that saying means, but you get it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's fine to say yes in person and then say what you really feel afterwards. I also think it is fine to say you don't want to be friends. I know that's weird, but Mm -hmm. I think you don't know them. You've met them once. Like a lot of times when I was trying to go on uh, dating app dates after my ex and I broke up, uh, I was not in a good enough place to be doing that. Like I would go and I would go on these dates and I would like make out with someone and then I would be like, ah, I got home and I was like, I feel crappy. Like I miss my ex and I feel awful. And so like, you know, you're having fun in the moment, but I think you do need that time to reflect after the date. And like, you know, I would just say, hey, I thought that I was ready to start dating, but I'm really not and I'm sorry, um, Like, I was, I can't remember if I said I didn't want to be friends, but I think I was just like, you know, my assumption is you're on a dating app to date. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not on a dating app to make friends. So, I mean, unless you're, uh, I I say that as a queer woman, wherein that happens a lot, but that has to sort of happen organically. I've never been like, met someone on a dating app and then been like, let's be friends. It's always sort of been like, uh, either like it just naturally went that direction But it wasn't like we decided after one date, like, we should keep hanging out as friends. I think if someone asks you in the middle of the date, you can sort of just say, ask me again at the end of the date. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, that can kind of be, like, a a playful way to, like, put it off. Um, Because I think it is, like, if you're in the middle of dinner or, like, you know, like, you're someplace where you cannot get away from them, then it's sort of, like, um, it's a time saver. So you uh, could just say, like, check in, like, why don't we check back in at the end of the date? And for them, they could be like, oh, okay, they're being coy versus, like, taking it immediately as rejection. I um, hate when I just remembered times where people were like, oh, my God, I'll have to bring you sometime. Or like, oh, you should meet my friend, like, in the middle of a first date. Like, oh, my God, you would love my friend Sarah or whatever. And I'm like, wait, is this a tr-? Now I'm thinking back on it and, like, that was a trick. Well, I also think that, like, it's valid to say... I don't like jump into relationships. Yeah. I don't jump into dating. And so for me, I'm still very much like in the getting to know you processing mode. And so I truly like, I don't know exactly what I want out of this right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then later when you get home, you can say, I thought about it more and I just like don't feel a romantic connection. If you're doing dating apps, you can even put in your profile, like I'm here to date. If we're not compatible, I don't want to make friends. I've literally never had somebody just like try to be my friend after... Dating, it's kind of a dating. gay thing, so I'm surprised that this is happening. Or or is it a trick? Is it like guys being like, mm-hmm. of course, like we'll be friends secretly hoping that one day you'll like make out? Like, is that the trick? <laughs> well, I mean, so what in what scenario does this come up where you're there like, do you want to go out again? And you say, no, thank you. And then like, I don't think you should ever bring up wanting to be friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
if they then, in response to you saying you don't want to date them anymore, say that they, why don't you guys just become friends? Then I think you're like, I, I totally understand that sentiment, but I just think because of how we met and because we mm-hmm. started off on this foot, it just like makes more sense for us to like go our separate ways. Yeah. One of my best friends right now uh, that I made in the last year and a half, we went on a date. We knew we met each other in real life. We went on a date and I was in an open relationship. And then afterwards I was like, hey, I texted her and was like, hey, I think you're really cool and cute. Um, I am like starting a relationship with someone else. It's not monogamous or anything, but I just want you to know that like, I'm not just seeing you, I'm seeing other people. And Mm -hmm. she wrote back and was like, oh, okay, well, I don't really want that. Uh, then let's just be friends. And I was like, okay, maybe we'll be friends. And then like, she's become one of my best friends. When was the next time you hung out after that? Who, who initiated that? Who did initiate it? I think, I think we, I think she asked me to go to like a gay dance night and we went. And then it was sort of a very interesting test of being single because we're out at like a gay bar. So like, it was like, we were clearly friends because we were there to like flirt with people. You know what I mean? Like it was a very clear friend hangout. Yeah. I mean, I guess my biggest piece of advice is to just not feel like you have to give someone a definitive answer in that moment. Totally. And you're not lying. Like, you can just say things to get out of the thing and then go home. Right. Like, I think, like, the the goal should be to defer. (laughs) So, like, if you're asked in the middle of the date, you defer to the end of the date. And if you're asked at the end of the date, it's sort of like, you know, too... Like, so someone's like, okay, so like, let, like, let's almost do a role play of this. So it's like, okay. I'm going to say to you, we're on a date. It's the end of the date. Here we go. Okay. I'd love to see you again. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I don't know. I've been getting more of like a friend vibe from this whole thing. Uh, I- I'm sorry. I, I just don't feel like it's like clicking romantically. So I, I think I'd rather not like waste both of our time. I'm devastated. <laughs> no, come on. Come on. Also, yeah, yeah, here's the thing. Don't let anyone see your address or where you live. Right. You know? Um, okay, so now you do it to me. Okay. Hey, uh, this was so fun. Um, I'd, l- I'd love to see you again. I actually, my friend's having a party on Saturday. You should come. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm actually, I'm busy on Saturday. And I'm, I should just tell you up front, like, I'm, kind of like very slow when it comes to dating and like the process and I you know I don't like to like commit to things before I get a chance to like kind of sit with stuff and like process it on my own but um I had a lot of fun and um thank you so much okay well uh it is a dinner party and I do need to know if you are coming right now because it's like sort of a plated thing no I already told you I can't make it oh okay so you'll just text me if you can make it no I absolutely will not be there Okay, so like day of, you'll just let me know? There's no scenario (laughs) at all where you will see me again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so start with that, Nicola. There is no scenario at all where you will see me again. (laughs) But I do think at the end of the day, I think because you have like that clear out, you can be a little more to the point. But in the middle of the date, let's like defer your answer to the end of the date or else it's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. Yeah. I don't know if that was helpful at all. I'm I'm like engaged and just like the idea of having to go through this yeah. is making me so anxious and uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. 
I'll watch The Bachelor and be like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to handle this when it happens to me. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm never, that's never going to happen to me. Dating is awkward. And dating it during really a is. pandemic is also awkward. So, I mean, I think that priority is yourself, your safety. And then after that, it's their feelings and respecting them. And so you got to have to figure out how to walk that line. But protect yourself first. Protect and yourself And don't feel first. like you have to hang out with people you're not into. And, like, if you know that you're not going to see them again, then just make sure that your response isn't super committal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. There is no scenario in which you will see me again. <laughs> if you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law. Stick around. Just between us. Hey! Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week, our guest is Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law. Hi, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. So can you tell us uh, about what you do and your book? Well, I'm a writer, an author, historian, journalist. I wrote a book called The Color of Law that attempts, I think successfully, to demolish the myth that the reason we have residential segregation in every metropolitan area in this country is because of something we all call de facto it just sort of happened by accident. It happened because of private bigotry or uh, actors in the private economy like banks or real estate agents discriminating or people just liking to live with each other of the same race or income differences. It's an other myth. The reason we have residential segregation in every metropolitan area of this country is because of racially explicit government policy at the federal, state, and local levels that were so powerful these policies that they determine uh, the racial segregation that we have today. Uh, the policies were numerous at the federal level. It was the requirement as a condition of suburbanization that developers uh, sell suburban homes to white families only. Uh, Levittown, for example, is the most famous example. The federal government prohibited him as a condition of his bank guarantees. Uh, Levitt, I'm talking about, uh, prohibited him from selling homes to African-Americans and even required uh, federal policy required that he include a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale or rental to African-Americans. The suburbs around every metropolitan area in this country, the white noose that we have around cities, was created on an explicitly racial basis by the federal government. It was an unconstitutional violation of the Fifth Amendment. As Americans, we have an obligation to remedy it. It did not happen by accident. It can't unhappen by accident. We need racially explicit policy to undo this that's as powerful as the policies that created it. I can go on and on. Maybe I'll stop here and, and let you ask some more questions. <laughs> no, we, we want to know all of it. But I wanna, when, when all right. did all of this start? Well, there were many, many policies starting at different times. The federal government in particular wasn't involved in housing until the New Deal, the Roosevelt administration, the Depression. Uh, the very first housing policy that the New Deal implemented was the creation of the first public housing in this country. It was not for poor people. We think of, poor, of public housing as being for poor people. The first public housing in this country, lasting for about 20 years, beginning in 1933, 
was for working class families who could afford the full cost of the housing and their rent. They weren't subsidized. The government built the housing and collected rent, full rent from the families, the working class families. In the Depression, you know, we had 25% unemployment, uh, but the public housing was for the 75% who were employed. It was the most desirable housing available because we had a housing shortage. And everywhere that the New Deal, the Public Works Administration, built this public housing, it segregated it, frequently creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. Uh, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright, uh, Langston Hughes, he wrote in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. That's not how we think of Cleveland today. Um, he said his best friend in high school was Polish. He said he dated a Jewish girl. It's what you'd expect to see happening in an integrated high school, in an integrated neighborhood. But the Public Works Administration went into this neighborhood, demolished housing, and created two separate projects, one for African-Americans, one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation in that area of Cleveland and elsewhere with other projects that persists to this day. We had a lot more uh, integration in the mid-early 20th century than we have today. We'd be stunned if we were transported back there to see the kind of uh, non-segregation that existed for the simple reason that we were a manufacturing economy. None of this internet stuff in those days. Uh, there were factories making things. They had to be located in the same central concentrated area because they needed to be located near a deep water port or a railroad terminal. Uh, no highways yet, no trucks. They had to be able to get their parts or ship their final products by rail or by ship. So if you had a factory district that was employing both African-American and white workers, they all had to live in broadly the same neighborhoods. These are the neighborhoods that the Public Works Administration started to segregate. In, in The Color of Law, in my book, I, I like to pick on self-satisfied smug places that think they're better than everybody else. One of them I write about is Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. It's uh, yeah. the area between, <laughs> yeah, the area between Harvard and MIT, the Central Square neighborhood, was about half black and half white in the 1930s. It was a fully integrated neighborhood. Public Works Administration demolished uh, housing there to build two separate projects, one for whites, one for African Americans, creating a pattern of segregation. With that and other projects in the Boston area that persist to this day, and these policies, let me say, the policies of the federal government were so powerful that they determine the landscape, the racial landscape of, of our, our metropolitan areas today. Uh, I mentioned Levittown as an example, but you can go to any metropolitan area in the country and find these suburbs. That's how the white working class was suburbanized. Those homes were inexpensive. Levittown, for example, uh, those homes in the, around 1950 sold for about $100,000 a piece in today's money. Any returning war veteran, Anybody with a working class job could afford a home for $100,000 a piece. For returning war veterans, they didn't even require a down payment. Uh, mm -hmm. White families uh, could move to, to Levittown and pay less in their monthly housing costs than they were paying for rent in public housing beforehand. Well, those $100,000 homes no longer sell for $100,000 everywhere in the country. They've appreciated in value. Uh, they sell for three dollars $500,000, and in some places, a million dollars and more. Mm -hmm. uh, the white families who were subsidized by the federal government with FHA and VA mortgages and the developers subsidized with guaranteed bank loans gained equity over the course of the next couple of generations from the appreciation and the value of their homes. They gained wealth. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to perhaps take care of uh, temporary emergencies, unemployment or medical issues. Uh, 
They use it to subsidize uh, their retirements, and they use it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans who were prohibited, prohibited under federal policy from participating in that wealth-generating exercise, gained no such wealth. Uh, they continued renting apartments for the most part in urban areas. Today, African-American incomes on average are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. You would think that if there was a 60% income ratio, African-Americans would have wealth at 60% of the white average. But in fact, while African-American incomes are about 60% of white incomes, African-American wealth is only 5% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid 20th century. That as Americans, this is a civil rights violation. We have an obligation to remedy uh, that wealth gap, that enormous wealth gap creates the, the overall inequality between the races that we have in this country today. By concentrating uh, the most disadvantaged families, families without wealth in low-income neighborhoods, uh, we've created uh, crises in our public education system because it's, there are single schools. We call them segregated schools where all the children come to school with uh, uh, conditions that make it difficult for them to learn, whether it's asthma from being up at night because they live in more polluted neighborhoods and the uh, more diesel trucks driving through them, health disparities between African-Americans and whites because so many African-Americans live in less healthy neighborhoods without access to supermarkets to sell fresh food. We had zoning ordinances, zoning rules in, in the 20th century that um, placed toxic dumps and polluting industries in neighborhoods where African-Americans lived, but not in white neighborhoods. It was an explicit racial policy. The wealth gap predicts... Uh, a good part of the police abuse that we spend so much time protesting about. Uh, there would still be discriminatory police behavior, I'm sure, but not nearly to the extent that there is if we weren't concentrating the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods where they have no access to good jobs or transportation to get to those jobs. And let me say this one final thing and I'll stop. And, um, the wealth gap and the segregation that it's created predicts the very, very dangerous and frightening political polarization that we have in this country today. It's not entirely racial, but it largely tracks racial lines. How can we ever expect to develop the common national identity that we need to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other that we have no ability to understand each other's life experiences, to empathize with each other? It's inconceivable how we can preserve this democracy uh, under those conditions. So so what can we do? Like what rules need to be overturned? What new policies need to be introduced? Like how do we kind of fix these decades of inequality? I was about to ask, is the answer reparations? <laughs> you know, I think that the, the important reason to learn this history and why I emphasize it so much is so long as we believed that it happened accidentally, it's de facto segregation. It's easy to think, in fact, we have no alternative to think that it can only unhappen accidentally. The Supreme Court has actually said that you can't explicitly try to undo segregation that the government didn't create. Once we understand that the government created this through public policy, 
it's equally easy to understand that public policy can undo it. The problem is not that uh, we don't know what the policies to undo it are. Policy experts, housing experts know very well how to undo this segregation. What's missing is a new civil rights movement that uh, is going to, in the words of the late John Lewis, um, cause good trouble to force this country to redress the segregation that we as a national country, a nation, have created. Uh, For example, in those suburbs that I talked about, uh, and they're in every metropolitan area in this country that sold in the mid-20th century to for $100,000 in today's money from which African-Americans were explicitly by public policy excluded. They're now no longer selling for $100,000. The federal government should be buying up homes in those uh, neighborhoods at market rates and reselling them to qualified African-Americans at uh, deep discounts. So they can now afford to live in communities that they're now permitted to live in for the first time or since the Fair Housing Act, but can no longer afford to. Working class families of either race can't afford to move to these communities. The federal government should be subsidizing African-Americans to move to them because they were once excluded on an unconstitutional basis. We have policies for low-income families who are disproportionately minority African-American and Hispanic. Uh, that uh, give them some support for their housing. There's a federal program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is a subsidy, a tax credit for developers to build housing that's affordable for low-income families. That program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, administered by the Federal Treasury Department, places a priority on placing low-income housing tax credit developments in existing low-income communities, reinforcing their segregation. The policy doesn't say it's for racial reasons. It claims that if you place low-income housing in existing low-income communities, it will somehow improve those communities. That's backwards. We ought to change that policy, so we place a priority, not all, but place a priority in placing more housing that's subsidized in higher opportunity communities. Uh, Those are the kinds of things we should be doing. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't have a new civil rights movement that's going to make it uncomfortable to maintain our segregated policies. And I'm hopeful that out of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that uh, engage some you know, 20 million or more Americans, mostly white, that out of those demonstrations, a new civil rights movement can emerge that will address the residential segregation that we as a nation have created. Because unless we address residential segregation, we're not going to address the symptoms whether those symptoms are in schools or in health disparities or in the criminal justice system. I know um, Americans don't love to look back and be like, oh, we we did a racist thing. Is that what it is? It's just forgotten because people assume that the projects were for black people and that's where they and they did this to themselves. Like, is that the the sort of way of of washing this away? Yes, that's what people believe because they haven't learned any better. That's why I wrote this book, The Color of Law, to teach this people this history. And I'll say the book has been out for three and a half years. Not a single fact that I've described to you has been challenged by a single historian. Uh, It's well established, the history I just described. The textbooks that we use in high schools, I talk about this in in The Color of Law, lie about the history. Uh, None of them uh, mention the segregation that the federal government imposed 
And let me just say that this um, uh, segregation was not the action of rogue bureaucrats working for the Federal Housing Administration or the Public Works Administration. This was written policy, written policy. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration, for example, had a manual which um, was used by appraisers whose job it was to recommend or not recommend the applications of developers for bank guarantees for their developments. The manual said explicitly you couldn't uh, uh, guarantee a federal bank loan uh, for a developer who would build a, a non-segregated project. You couldn't even, the manual said, uh, guarantee a bank loan for a developer of an all-white project if it was going to be located near where African-Americans were living because in the written words wow. of the federal policy manual, yeah, in the written words of the federal policy manual, it said that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. <gasps> and in my book, The Color of Law, I have a photograph of a six foot high, half mile long concrete wall that the developer was required to put up by the federal government uh, to separate his proposed development from a nearby African-American neighborhood before the federal government would guarantee his bank loans. Wow. So do you think an important part of, of the current activism is educating people about this history since it's not taught to us in schools? Yes, absolutely. As, as long as we think this happened by accident or happened naturally, mm -hmm. It's quite easy to come to the conclusion that it can only unhappen by accident or unhappen naturally. This was created, not just created by government, but created by government in an unconstitutional fashion, in violation of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, in violation of the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution. Once we recognize that the racial boundaries in every metropolitan area of this country are a civil rights violation, then the next step is to recognize that we have an obligation as Americans to redress it, to fix it. And I think that recognition can come. It'll be difficult. It's a lot harder to create the kinds of policies I was describing to desegregate neighborhoods than it was to desegregate buses or lunch counters or water fountains as we did in the 1960s. But it's just as imperative under our constitution to do so. Thank you so much. This was so enlightening and important for people to, to know because I know we're just not taught this part of our history. Right. So wh where can people find out more about your work and, um, and also get your book? The book is called The Color of Law. I, I don't mean to boast, but it's not on the New York Times bestseller list. Any bookseller will have it. Um. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Our our audience is, uh, you know, 18 to 30-something people who I think absolutely miss this in their textbooks. So I we yes. really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate talking to you. It's time for Hypotheticals. And this week we have a very special guest joining us for America's favorite game show, America's favorite father, Ken Raskin. Thank you very much. <laughs> 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 He's so thrilled to be here. Yes, I'm very excited. I am very excited and I can't wait to hear these hypotheticals. He was trying to get me to tell him ahead of time, but I wouldn't. I thought you no. told everybody ahead of time. No, no, no. no. Are you an avid listener of hypotheticals? Do you I feel am. prepared? I am. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Let's see how prepared you are. Okay. <laughs> okay. So our first game, I thought we would go on theme a little bit. Are you a terrible parent? 
just to be clear, you were not, you are not, you're the best. This is just a game. Okay. <laughs> I like to, I like the clarification. <laughs> okay. So our first game, your daughter, 10, has a beloved pet dog who shits all over the house constantly. So one night, you switch out that dog with a robot dog, and no one notices because the year is 2040 and robots have come a long way. Your daughter only gets suspicious 10 years later when the dog is still alive and thriving. You end up having to put down the robot dog while your daughter is at college so she won't find out what you did. Are you a terrible parent? Well, I'm allowed to ask questions, right? Yeah. Okay, so did my daughter love the robot? Your daughter loved her dog, and therefore she thought the robot was her dog. Did they have the same personality? Yeah, robots are really good in 2040. <laughs> and this was a really well house-trained robot dog. Right, you, you programmed yeah, it for that. What happened to the original dog? Uh, he brought it to a shelter. <gasps> no, he did not. He gave it to one of his good friends. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought we were fully <laughs> coming. Uh, we were bringing Ken on to cancel him for rehoming your dog years ago. Please go on, Allison. <laughs> yeah, this was a little personal. I changed it to having a, a robot dog so that you didn't come off as bad as when you just made me give away our dog. <laughs> See, now it all comes out. It all comes out all the time in your um, podcast, I hear. I was going to say, do you feel like you're like, I made one mistake my whole goddamn life and I have to hear about it every single day for my daughter, even though I did so many good things for her. All the time. <laughs> All the time. Yes. Yes. And not exactly. only do I hear about it, but the entire world gets to hear about it. <laughs> you and my parents have the same, the same gripes. But no, Allison doesn't hold a grudge, though. I don't. I feel like I have I have forgiven you, but it was also trauma. To have my dog be given it was away. It's trauma for me to have that dog. Wow, I love I love this gotcha journalism we have going on here. So anyway, I do not uh, think I was a, uh, I would be a terrible parent because it was just like having a real dog. Now, yeah, and she, robot, and she loved the robot. Right? She loved the robot. If it was a robot dog that looked like a robot and that you didn't really like the robot dog, then that would be something different. But here, since you didn't even know it wasn't the original dog and you love the dog and it lasted a long time, probably longer than the real dog would have lasted. I think that was a good parent. Let me ask you a question. What happened to the original dog? They get adopted. Yeah. The dog got adopted actually by um, these really rich people oh. who fed it, who fed it like fresh food every day. And it had a, b a bunch of toys and beds and a field to let to play in. Okay. Then you're then, then because of the outcome, you are a good parent. <laughs> yeah. But normally dropping a dog back at a shelter is, I feel like that's what happened to Beans, like my dog. And I'm like, who would ever give away this angel? So, but it, since his life ended up good, I say- so You guys are fine with just a parent blatantly lying to their kid for 10 years and then never telling them- Well, the wait, how did I lie? Well, <laughs> how did you lie? You went to bed one night, the robot was there the next day. You didn't say, dad, is this a robot? You know what? This is one of those moments where it's very obvious you were a lawyer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, so you're not a terrible parent. Yeah, you really got yourself out of that one. Wow. Okay, our, our next game. Is this person an alien or just rude? Okay. While playing in a tennis tournament, your randomly assigned doubles partner goes out of their way to hit every ball, even when it's on your side of the court. 
They are incredibly fast and skilled, and you win the tournament without hitting a single ball. Wow. Is this person an alien or just rude? They let you take home the trophy. Definitely an alien, because there's no way any human being could possibly do that. You don't no, think so? I don't even think so. Even the best tennis players in the world could play and return every ball, no matter where it's hit. And um, no, so they're an alien. Wait, what year is this taking place in? 2037. Robot. <laughs> okay, but that's not, a, that's not a choice. Alien. But Allison is uh, twists and turns. Robot. Because you established the existence of robots in the first question. Okay. Robot. Well, it turns out that when you got rid of the robot dog, they refurbished it into this tennis partner, and it's now, you know, trying to get back at you because you would never play ball with it. Robot it is not dog. an alien, then. No. 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 There's no rules to hypotheticals, Dad. This is my fanciful world where I get to be king. Do you like how I've finally started putting together the pieces of hypotheticals into one cinematic universe? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought of that. I just <gasps> went along with it. <laughs> well, I'm a genius. So, so what, what do you think of the responses, aren't you supposed to say? I'll announce the winner at the end okay. of, of okay. all okay. three. Our final game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this no. cheater? No. Dad, you have to at least listen to the question. I know you have very black and white views of cheating, but just okay. listen. Okay. Your wife of 42 years is recovering from knee surgery. And needs to go to physical therapy twice a week. You find out months into treatment that your wife is naked during physical therapy so she can feel more connected to her body. Would you stay with this cheater slash nudist? Her physical therapist is very good looking. Why does she need to be naked? Yeah. <laughs> because she says that it, it helps her be more connected to her body. Does the, does the physical therapist only touch her knee? Yeah, but the physical therapist is also naked. Why? Because he thinks he does a better job naked as well. I, this is so confusing. Yes. But I, Sorry. so, so does, does, does my wife tell me this the first day? Never no. tells me. Alex. No, doesn't tell you until one day you go to pick her up early and you find both of no, them naked doing it, knee exercises. I, I don't understand. You would leave mom for that? That's it. Ah! Okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, it takes place in the home? No, it takes place at a physical therapy office. And they're not wearing, like, when you get, even when you get a massage, you're wearing, like, a little towel. Nothing? No, they're complete. Both of them are complete. They're the only ones are... in the physical therapy office. No. So everybody's naked in this place? No, just them. All right, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's over. Yeah. Yeah, but you have stayed for so much worse, and this one you're done. I'm trying to imagine. If I was if I was monogamous, I I know that's hard for you. <laughs> I know it is hard. I, I it is alien to me. Uh, I get yeah. I guess I would leave mostly because I'm like imagining like doing physical therapy and you're like on there's no cover and you're like on like if you get a massage at least they put down like a sheet like I don't know it seems gross. It's just for sanitary reasons you're leaving. Yeah, it seems gross. But Dad, <laughs> listen. What if this is the only way her knee would get better? It wouldn't be. <laughs> wow that's fair okay so i'm going to announce the winner okay, go ahead. i'm going to award gabby 572 points and my dad ken raskin 737 points mainly for just being a really good sport during this episode <laughs> of gotcha hypotheticals <laughs> oh my god <laughs> wow 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 not, not forgetting all the answers right 
Uh, no, nobody got the answers okay. right. That's uh, I would have been disappointed if anybody did. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope that you're not mad at me, and I love you very much. Say I love you back. See, I made you wait, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about billionaires. Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X X baby. So this week I wanted to discuss billionaires um, because they're getting a lot of heat, and I think they deserve it. Yes. Okay. So just this morning I saw a, a thing about Trump again trying to get rid of the post office, and I tweeted, "Hello, billionaires! Like, we need like three billion dollars to to fix the post office and to keep it running. Where are you guys? Like, Bloomberg, hello! Like, you acted like you wanted to help people. Where the fuck are you? Save the post office! I don't understand. Like, there's no world in which they would ever run out of money. There's no world in which they like made any of this money in a way that is ethical. So, like, what are you doing? Are you just sitting around? I don't understand." I think that one of like the falsities of the American dream is that anybody can become a billionaire. Nope, not true at all. And it's just, it's like not true. I mean, most of these people, it's generational wealth. Yeah. And so they're inheriting a lot of money that is then like letting them make more money off of their money. So like once you have a ton of money, it's it's a lot easier to just keep making money off of that through like investments and buying property and all of that stuff. Well, and exploiting people. What what do you mean specifically by that? Uh, I mean, the idea that Jeff Bezos is a billionaire and yet he does not pay Amazon factory workers a living wage. He does not pay the warehouse people well. He does not have good conditions in the warehouse. A lot of them have recurring illnesses and, and injuries from working in the warehouse. They use uh, something called the camper force, which are freelance workers who travel around. It's usually older people who've lost their retirements traveling around working for Amazon. And they like promote that and get people to do that. And it's just like these things that are so exploitative and and so dangerous for the average person. And they could absolutely be fixed, but he just doesn't want to and doesn't feel that he needs to. Right, because when your costs are low and those costs include salaries and benefits, then you get to keep more money. Yes. So, like, it's a huge issue of, like, wealth distribution. And the fact is, is that right now, like, we have just unbelievable wealth inequality in this country. Uh, billionaires are, like, 0.0019% of the U.S. population. And as of August 5th, 2020, they had $3.6 trillion. So this is what I'm There's no world in which you will spend that much money, even if you, like— <laughs> That game, uh, You Are Jeff Bezos, where it's that it's this video game where that you have all of his money and then they tell you things to buy and you can keep buying things until you run out of his money. And it's the point of the game is that it's literally impossible. You could fix homelessness, fix the Flint water crisis. Fi- I mean, not not probably not this because it's more recent, but fix the post office, like all of it. And you would not even break into a little bit of your fortune. Plus, it's not like, oh, these people are also contributing members of society and that they're fairly paying their taxes. They're going out of their way 
to not pay taxes. So Offshore they're finding accounts. every loophole. Yeah. They're yeah, they're banking in other countries. Like it's it's not like they're like, okay, well, we're still following the same rules as the rest of you. I just happen to have more money. They're like avoiding taxes. They're avoiding um helping our country. Also, um, Right now, the way that the tax system is set up is that you're basically kind of only taxed on your income. Yep. And that's why they're able to like, even if like they were to correctly pay taxes, they're not being taxed on their actual wealth. Yes. Which like includes properties and assets and all the things that they own. Yes. So a really important thing that needs to happen is to create a wealth tax where they are being Mm -hmm. taxed Mm -hmm. on their entire wealth. Um, instead of just like their yearly income, which they're able to fudge and like get away with a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So here's here's something that you you touched on a little bit in terms of the American dream. So there is a thing that we've covered again on Bad With Money, which is my other show, called the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And the prosperity gospel is oftentimes tied to evangelical Christianity, but it, it doesn't have to be. Uh, in that sense, it would be most recognizable as people that are members of a church believe that their mega pastor— who has like four private jets and is like, uh, you know, if not a billionaire, a millionaire, uh, deserves his wealth because he is a prophet of God and because he's a good person and because uh, anyone who makes uh, that amount of money is special, smarter, chosen, uh, and like more deserving. And that has left the uh, the where it started in the mega churches and has actually moved into broader society. Uh, and you can see it most most appallingly with Donald Trump is that because you're like, why would these people who don't have any money vote for this person who has a lot of money? And the idea is that because he has money, he is viewed, he must be special in some way. He must know something I don't know. He must have earned it. He must have worked harder than me. Um, And that they don't see that there is uh, exploitation and evil and hoarding and greed behind all of that because they're so convinced that the reason these people have more than them has to be because they're really good people. When it's so much of it is just generational wealth. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's this thing, right, where you show uh, there's this meme going around of what is it? It's Jeff Bezos's garage, parents garage. And it says like Jeff Bezos invented Amazon in this garage in 1994. What's stopping you? Without any context of his of his parents' wealth, of his ability to spend the time working on that, of you know all of these things that he had he had startup funding, he had all this stuff. It's this false narrative that that people work themselves to death over and and don't advocate for the policies that would best serve them. Right. I, there is a great quote that described billionaires as an aristocratic class that undermines social mobility and democracy. Yes. Yes, because they they are leading to how much like wealth inequality there is during this uh, pandemic, as so many Americans and people across the world are dealing with financial hardships, especially Americans are dealing with unemployment, all of this stuff, job losses. Billionaires collectively have made a profit. They're like making more money than usual. So clearly something is very wrong. Like they're obviously, you know, like investing in like healthcare or certain things and they're profiting off of this like international disaster that's not the way things should work that doesn't mean that they're worthy good people and to like touch on more of what you said like if you show me a billionaire where everyone who worked for them and everyone who who touched on any business that they were involved in was paid super well 
above minimum wage, full benefits, thriving, super taken care of, then I would be like, okay, so that's interesting. So they have the money to make sure that, that everyone in their sphere is, is well taken care of. That is never the case. No, <laughs> Almost, no, not at all. Not like, at all. Like, yes, like Bill Gates is like donates a lot of money. But like you said, like, why doesn't he literally just like step in and save the post office? Like they're right. Like, why? Why doesn't Flint have fresh water? Like there's all of these things. Like if they banded together, poverty in America would pretty much go away. I have come to the realization that nobody is going to save us and that they just don't want to. There's some huge benefit to the status quo for them. They want to look like they're helping. They, but they don't actually want to help because it would it would affect them negatively in some way, and they don't want that. Because you're like, why wouldn't they just step in? I got to mm-hmm. think that they don't care because the status quo is so beneficial to them that they truly do not care. Or we have just been fed, like, the falsities of capitalism where, like, there is this belief that if you give up too much of your money, then, like, you're you're fucked. Like, you'll be on the street. Do you know what I mean? Like, if these people gave up 90% of their money, right. they would still have so much money. Right. <laughs> but I can imagine that there is this fear of like, well, but what about me? What about my family? What if I if I give up my money, then I won't have it. I won't have any financial stability. Because like, as you get richer and richer, your idea of what it what you need to live yeah. just gets so blown out exponentially to like the reality of the yeah. rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. We've kind of talked about that. Yeah. That like you just lose perspective. Like, where is the one person who doesn't? I mean, out of all of them, they've all lost perspective. Well, when you're saying all of them, it's so few people. Yeah. Like the amount of people that are billionaires is such a small percentage of the world. And it's the ratio of how much money they control and then how much influence they have Mm -hmm. is astronomical. We haven't even touched on how being a billionaire allows you to have so much influence in elections. Yes. Like it's called like dark money. And like you look at like, you got to read this book by Jane Mayer called Dark Money. It's terrifying. It's yeah, all about like they that. have their hands in everything. Yep. They're controlling so much stuff. And so potentially that's why they don't want to give up the money because then they lose that influence and that control. Let me tell you, there's a part in Dark Money. It's talking about Obama's inauguration and how like uh, how amazing it was. And then the end of it is like the inauguration was incredible and historical. Uh, Obama took the stage on a carpet paid for by the Koch brothers. And the point is, is that like, even if it's the Democratic Party, even if it's like liberalism, the undercurrent of everyone being bought is like, you can't escape it. Yeah. So I think that the things that we can do about this is supporting the wealth tax moving forward. Yes. And making it clear that that's something we want. Also, not letting these people get away with tax loopholes, not letting their corporations get away with tax loopholes. You're never going to be a billionaire. Tax the wealthy. That was my final line was you will never be a billionaire and just reassess everything. We're not all set up to start from the same place. Like so many people like we discussed are set up so many paces behind other people that they'll never catch up. Yes. Like it's just. Tamika, do you want to come on in and yell about income inequality? I never yell, actually. I can't remember a single time I've yelled at another person. In your entire life? In my entire life, yeah. Like, I get angry, and I feel like a lot of the things that were brought up in this episode make me very angry. 
but I also just have this feeling of sadness mm-hmm. about, you know, long standing, very carefully woven inequality. Mm-hmm. You just feel like this isn't a place where people are, are supposed to live well. Oh, you yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. The yeah. Sit-up. The system is rigged against so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's also hard because it's so baked into our education system, things that are so wrong. Mm-hmm. And like that is also on purpose. And then I also really felt when he was like, well, the Republicans used to be really good on race, race issues and then this happened. And then like we think of the New Deal as being something amazing that like saved everyone from the Depression and like helped so many people. But it actually only seemed like it only helped white people and then led to all of this redlining. And it's just like, it makes me, once again, the radicalization of Gabby Dunn, it makes me be like, no side is good. Every every federal government, every angle of it has been purposefully racist. Certainly sounds like it. That's why, okay, there's a Bad With Money episode about reparations. Go listen to it. I really think when he was talking, I was like, reparations is, I think, really the answer. There's actually this, uh, this is maybe a little off topic, but there's this Lauren Hill song that I, I've been listening to for a very long time called Everything is Everything. You guys know it. I'm sure if the listeners aren't too young, they might know it. Um, <laughs> there's a line in the song that I heard when I was young and it's evolved for me as I've gotten older where she says, it feels like we, we lose the game before we even start to play. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I remember feeling that growing up feeling that as a teenager, feeling that as in my 20s, feeling that now in my 30s. And it's meant something different the more I learned about myself and more about how far I'm able to succeed or, you know, move about the country or sort of my ability to feel free. And I think this is such an interesting time to be quarantined and to learn more about, um, I, I don't know. I mean, we're all sort of in, in different ways stuck where we are because of the circumstances. Most of us are limited in how much we can move forward. And we're having to examine these these things about the way that the world is constructed. I think it's also a time where people can really educate themselves about what's going on, about what's happened, about what we need to do to move forward. When he was like, look, we know what policies to implement. We just haven't, you know, like in some cases, the solution is there. It's just about actually acting on it. How do we get, I mean, it's like, how do we get them to to act on it? Because it's more frustrating to be like, oh, they know what to do. They just don't mm-hmm. do it. Same with the billionaires. It's like, we know what needs to happen. And it's just like not happening. It, it, it makes me think that because of all of this stuff, it just, it's just like uh, made, made me think, which I understand being very late to the game on this, that like, it's all on purpose. It's all just sta- keeping status quo. They know what they need to do. They just don't do it. And that's any administration. That's like more and more and more apparent every single day. I think that's why it's so important to get more progressives on the ballot. It's, it's activism. It's like, like he said, it's making people uncomfortable. It's not letting them continue the status quo. Yeah. And also, you know, it's interesting that he was talking about wanting a new civil rights movement when I'm sure... And I don't know if this is true, Tamika, if that's frustrating because it seems like the idea is that white people are waking up to this when, like, I'm sure you're sort of like, yeah, no fucking duh. And, like, they're like, where's the new civil rights movement? It's like, it's probably been here. People just, like, aren't, didn't give a shit. Yeah, it's sort of more validated when there are people who aren't black a part of the movement. 
that's a bit frustrating. But I mean, it's not new. I think that's another problem is that these feelings and even the things we probably heard aren't really new. It's not, mm-hmm. well, for me, it's not new, but it's information that's so, so deeply woven and has so many broad uh, effects that it feels impossible to root out where it starts. I think that's the most frustrating part is like sort of taking these feelings and figuring out where to even start to fix the root of all of these things that are happening that cause so much oppression and so much inequality. That's, that's what's most frustrating. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we learned a lot in this episode, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> when did we rate it? Uh, I will rate it seven out of six Lauren Hill songs. Mm. I will rate it eight out of eight. Uh, there is no world in which you will see me again. <laughs> Tamika? Yeah, I say uh, five out of five role-playing scenarios between Gabby and Allison. I love it. Perfect. Got to do that more often. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And thank you to Allison's father for playing hypotheticals. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much to, to my dad, Ken Raskin, for playing hypotheticals. And thank you to Richard Rothstein for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Hi, Dad. He's going to listen to this one. <laughs> oh, my God. Stitcher.